Take a network break. Happy 2024. Uh, today, we're going to look at some of the biggest tech trends and themes from 2023 and discuss how they might develop, advance, or change this year. Topic include AI, of course, the growing tension between open source and for-profit software, quantum computing, space networking, and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. See how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud Secure Web Gateways, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. Palo Alto Networks has produced a virtual event where you can hear how the latest innovations in SASE can help your organization automate costly and complex IT operations with AI-powered digital experience management, connect and secure branch offices and the hybrid workforce with SD-WAN, ZTNA 2.0, and Cloud Secure Web Gateways. Go to paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash SASE dash signature dash moment or see the show notes for episode 461 for the link. One more time, that's paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash SASE dash signature dash moment. Uh, we are also uh, have a tech bite today, also with Palo Alto Networks. We're going to look at autonomous digital experience management, or ADEM, that provides detailed visibility into end-user device and application performance. We'll talk about how Palo Alto Networks is using AI ops to help IT and help desk teams quickly identify and respond to problems for a distributed workforce. Now, digital experience monitoring is a pretty cool thing. I'm a, I'm personally a big fan. I used, I've installed it and used it since 1999, before it was even a thing, and it didn't work back then. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it works now. So uh, it's always interesting to hear what Palo Alto is doing because they've embedded it pretty much inside of their SASE product. So if you're you know, rolling out an SD-WAN and then adding the security, then DEM becomes a really, really useful tool for managing that network, I think. Yeah, and all those distributed users who are complaining about why the network is slow, then you can actually get some visibility into what's happening and let them know. Yeah, well, I think it's the biggest thing is that when you do SD-WAN, you're doing it over the public WAN, so you're over internet connections of varying quality. Sometimes it's broadband, sometimes it's gigabit. You've got different providers, and there's so much that can go wrong. You know, there's so much uncertainty in that WAN. It's no longer deterministic like it was in the days of dedicated lease circuits with, you know, guaranteed bandwidth and stuff. And having better visibility tools like like digital experience monitoring, like synthetic testing, can will build up your confidence that you understand what's happening out there and what's really happening in the field, you know, at peak times and in off peak times, yeah. which I think is the difference. Yeah. Yeah. But let's leave that for the tech bites. Let's. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, several themes or ideas or topics that we covered a lot in 2023. The first one is uh, where we see AI going in 2024 or what it means in 2024. Yeah, I thought what we'd do, you know, Drew and I talked about what to do for this show. There's not a lot of news that happens between mid-December and mid-January. There's been some, of course, but I think what we'll do is push that off to the next show yeah. and take the time to sort of not to do a retrospective or a or to do a, you know, predictions for 2024, but to, I think there's a number of themes that are happening now that look set to be the things that we'll be discussing for most of 2024. I don't I guess one thing to say is I don't see too much new emerging in 2024, Drew. I don't think um, that there's a lot of space in the market for something new to come on. There's so much transition and so much change happening out there, um, both in the technology sphere and in the political sphere, which the two are increasingly related, in my view, um, that I think, you know, we can predict fairly predictive, fairly accurately. Yeah. Yeah. The topics that we're going to talk about. So AI, I think, is the first one. Um, and in, in some sense, it's still less than a year old. Chat GPT only was released in February 2023. So, <laughs> uh, and so, and yet it's all anybody wants to talk about. And the category that AI exists in is not totally new. It's been around for 10 years before that, but Chat GPT sort of made, uh, did a transition that made everybody want to engage with it. Before that, it was always rather specialized. You'll see uh, 
there's a definite parallel with quantum computing, which we'll talk about in a little bit. I think the, the thing that we now know about AI is it's not a new product category in the sense that it's being added to everything. But if you look at it in terms of infrastructure, what we're seeing is all of our existing infrastructure gets things added to it to get AI. So AI gets added to existing databases. AI gets added to documentation. AI gets added to command line interfaces, which we've talked about in 2023. Mm -hmm. um, existing hardware products like servers and uh, switches and routers get accelerated, AI accelerators added to them, which we saw with Broadcom's ASICs in the Q4 last year. They get modified and advances to existing products create AI infrastructure. So it's not a, a wipe the floor clean start with, you know, it's not a greenfield. You've got to throw everything out to start with AI, Drew. That's not what we're seeing. Is that fair? I think it is fair that AI, at least for LLMs, are additive. It's going to sort of enhance or partner with existing applications like Word documentation, like uh, a Slack interface, like some kind of uh, tech system. Uh, it's not going to be, I'm going to buy an AI. It's that AI capabilities are going to be added to what I'm currently using. Mm. One of the questions we haven't addressed is whether AI is worth paying for. So we're seeing a lot of vendors build an, uh, you know, an open source version of their AI chatbot, you know, their LLM, and then try to say, well, we'll have an advanced version if you pay for it. Now, ChatGPT or OpenAI has been able to turn that into a $1.3 billion revenue business. Um, but now we're seeing Google Bard want to charge money for it. Microsoft wants to charge money for Copilot uh, in coding and things like that. I am not entirely sure that people in an era of social media where things are expected to be given to them for free, albeit with surveillance or advertising paste, you know, mm -hmm. on board, mm -hmm. are people willing to say pony up, you know, $200 a year to get access to an advanced AI LLM chatbot? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Well, I think uh, enterprise customers are used to paying for software, so I don't know that that's an issue. Uh, I think the question is, will the AI add-ons actually deliver value to make it worth that uh, upcharge. Um, you know, maybe mm -hmm. it is worth my time that I don't have to write, you know, standard emails anymore if I can just have an AI do it or I can get summaries on meetings or whatever. Uh, but th yeah, I think that is the question. Is the value going to be worth paying extra for it? And I don't know that that's proved out yet. No, I mean, there are definitely use cases for AI. You know, uh, one of the things that I've seen a lot of is people being able to take data from this system and move it into that system. So extract data from a and a, from a financial report and move it into an Excel spreadsheet. AI can help you to do the reformatting instead of, you know, doing it using code or, you know, uh -huh. Ansible or Python or whatever whatever language you use to do that in. You know, is that worth paying for? Well, yes, because that replaces a certain amount of work. But there's a whole bunch of work here about do I have to teach the AI what I want it to do? How does it do that repeatedly and in such a way that I can trust that what it's done is accurately correct? <laughs> well, that's the big thing, particularly with LLMs. Mm. Uh, can you trust the output? Uh, and that also, I think, hasn't been proved out. <laughs> I think the, the reverse case has been certainly proved. You know, yeah, <laughs> lawyers submitting lawyers submitting ChatGPT with with <laughs> false, you know, legal references and yes. know, so forth, and just like yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, ChatGPT and large language models did dominate the conversation around AI, but I, LLMs aren't, aren't the only kind of AI or machine learning. So I'm hoping that we'll see in 2024 more development around domain-specific AI models for things like security, for networking and network management, for data analytics, that kind of thing, where it's not about having a chat interface. It's about actually looking at a very specific kind of data to extract more information and perhaps some novel inferences from that data. Yeah, I agree. I think we'll see domain-specific AI come out as useful first 
before we see general AI become more useful, if that makes sense. You can't just walk up to an AI and say, I've got a cough and a sniffle. What do I have? Because it'll always tell you to instantly go to the emergency room. You're dying of sepsis or something, right? And um, I think what we need is domain-specific AI to learn lessons and learn how to work with AI before it becomes more widely deployed. And the narrower the domain, the better it is. Yes, yes. I mean, we, we know that AI and ML need a lot of data to work on, but um, it helps if that data is clean and optimized and for a specific use case, very narrow. So I think LLMs may serve as a front row, a front end uh, on how you interact with other ML tools. But I think domain-specific AI, we want to see it do things like correlate and contextualize all of the alarms and data that's coming at you from whatever systems you're looking at, do things like speed up root cause analysis, or even do some predictive analysis like, hey, we think this component's yeah. going to fail, or you may need to up uh, the bandwidth you're using at this uh, branch office because we see consumption rising, things like that, um, where it's yeah. working with a narrow set of data and the issue isn't, can I have a nice conversation with it, but is it actually going to contextualize lots of information that for me as a human is hard to work with? Yeah, and I think that's something that we saw throughout 2023 when we talked to vendors about their AI in their products, is that it's reading the network and detecting patterns or detecting, you know, able to find, as you say, a root cause or do predictive analysis. So it's read only. If you remember back to intent-based networking about five to eight years ago, when intent-based networking, it started as reading the network and it didn't configure the network. It could tell you, it could read the network configuration and say, this is what it, and then it would give you the configuration. And then at some point, the, the confidence level in the accuracy of the, the software then came, oh, we can configure the network in these limited use cases. And now it's much more, you know, expanding the use cases that it can address. I suspect AI will follow a similar path. Yeah, I think so. People are going to get, have to build trust in these domain-specific AIs to make sure, am I getting correct information back that I trusted enough to take whatever automated remediations it might suggest uh, that I do? Uh, could I just push a button and have the AI do it? Where I think we're a ways from that. Although folks like Juniper with Mist, I think, have made advances here, and I expect yeah. uh, other vendors in that space to to follow along. And, and I would also note that Juniper is yeah. also essentially attaching a an LLM uh, to front end Mist so that you can have a more natural language interface with mm -hmm. it. But the issue is that they've got the domain specific AI behind it doing the actual work, and that's what you want to focus on. Oh, they have, and they have a significant advantage over their competitors. So I hope they can leverage that. Uh, you know, they've got what eight years of missed AI, something like way that, ahead yeah. of everybody else. And yeah. they, I hope that they can take that lead and convert that into business leadership, you know, product leadership as well. Yeah, and I think so. As consumers of AI, particularly in the enterprise space, I think just like we did with public clouds, uh, IT teams are going to have to understand sort of the benefits and trade offs and think about developing policies around what kind of data and how much of it is being consumed by these AI systems. How is that data being transported, ingested, anonymized, protected? How is your data getting poured into a lake with other companies' data and whether leaks are possible? Yeah. Are they gonna be able to find out things about you using these systems? Yeah. I think the other thing you need to think about is how vendors who are taking your data are monetizing the data you are providing them and are you getting comparable or equitable benefits from the way they are using their data to monetize for themselves? So all those points are absolutely accurate. The question about data and the data that you're training on and then where you perform the inference is also a, a second thing. But one of the challenges we've got is if the vendors are now training on AI corrupted data, I think we're going to see some problems in 2024. So for example, OpenAI was trained on a lot on public data and a lot of that public data is not necessarily relevant. 
it may actually be antagonistic. It may be, you know, aligned this way or that way. It reflects divisions in society. It's not fair or balanced or right or accurate or <laughs> <Right>. whatever. <laughs> and um, I think one of the interesting things is that we might see what happens with Facebook and Google and AWS have all got their AI and they're all trained on substantially different data. What we haven't seen is Apple yet release its AI and Apple, I think, is probably one vendor who's actually got accurate to access to the most consumer data that is unadulterated because they've got access to your devices. And they've been big on trust from right the way back from the very beginning. You know, we're not selling your your details. We're not selling you. Mm-hmm. I think Apple's actually got the, the one data source. So, for example, with resumes, we now have a an adversarial situation where people are using AI to generate their resume and recruiters are now using AI to read resumes <laughs> and evaluate candidates, right? Right. At that point, that's just AI on AI action. And, and I'm not sure that, that that is actually delivering any value to anybody. And, <laughs> and if that happens in consumer, but if it also happens in the technology space where the AI data, you know, the outputs of AI start to get fed into other AI, there's a feedback loop there that may actually be uh, not not good. It may actually be like guitar feedback, where it just becomes a squealing in your ears, which is not what, what, not what you were looking for. Right. Yeah. I think there are larger conversations about LLMs to be had about what happens when all of the new content being pumped out is being pumped out by AIs that were trained on the original content. And do we sort mm. of start making a copy of a copy of a copy that becomes... <laughs> less useful. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I that's something that, that I think everybody's aware of that. Like that's not, un, that's, that's, not a, that's a societal problem. It's not an IT problem. I think, you know, for, for IT folks listening to this, when you're evaluating AI-based systems, I think focus less on the chat GPT front end, where I think a lot of vendors are uh, putting the hype around because for one, those things are good at sounding convincing, but um, you really want to focus on the domain specific capabilities and shortcomings of what really matters. So like, for a security-based AI, can it really synthesize thousands of alerts and events triggered by my firewalls, my IPSs, my endpoint agents? Tell me which specific laptops got compromised. That's the thing you want to test, not can I have a nice little conversation with this front end. Mm. I think the other use case that I'd be looking for is when you've been breached in cybersecurity and you have to figure out what happened. I think an AI that can help you do incident response is going to be a big deal because it can go into all the data and say, oh, here's the initial breach. Maybe you use a different set of tools to find it. And you can say, tell the AI, you'll say, okay, this is what we're looking for. Go and find this across my estate. And it can go and look at all of the systems that you, all of the disparate systems that have a cybersecurity set up and start to do the incident, run the incident response for you. I think that's one area which is we're going to see a lot more of. Yeah, particularly as the SEC is now requiring publicly traded companies to uh, mm-hmm. announce uh, significant breaches within four days of finding out about it. So having automation yeah. tools is going to be useful for that. Yeah. yeah, and that SEC has been followed worldwide. So that will eventually flow through to Europe and and, and to public companies more widely, I think, as well. Uh well, let's move on. But before we do, I just want to say, you know, if you've got thoughts, feedback, comments, whatever you want to tell us, we're crazy or whatever, um, you can always hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU, the FU's for follow-up. Um, but our next topic is the future of open source. There was a lot of kerfuffle this year about uh, the way for-profit companies are tweaking licenses to make them not traditionally open source anymore. In some ways, they're doing that to protect themselves from other mm-hmm. companies who may be uh, a little bit predatory when it comes to open source software. So I think we've got an interesting conversation here. Yeah, well, I think the two that happened in 2023 was Red Hat, obviously restricted access to its Fedora distribution, and you can now only access Red Hat Linux as a paid-for version. 
which is uh, while it may be permitted under the you know the original GPL, it's certainly not in the spirit of. Uh-huh. Um, and HashiCorp, and t- uh, with its Terraform licensing change this year, where it moved away from a, a true GPL license to a business license, saying you've got absolute rights to use my product, just don't set yourself up into competition with us. Yep. Um, which is, I think most people would agree that it's a reaction to AWS's open search where they forked the Elasticsearch product and basically stole the whole of Elasticsearch's product to make for their own profit. And uh, everybody knows that AWS is very predatory when it for, when it comes to this type of operations. And I, I, I don't know um, that this is a threat to open source. I think open source continues as is. I, what I've always believed, Drew, is that large scale open source is inherently unwieldy and somewhere when you're doing really large projects like producing a distribution you really need a company to do the whole thing mm-hmm. you need hundreds of people doing the whole you know the production the documentation the quality testing you know doing the pr to promote the brand you know all that sort of stuff and i'm not 100% sure or i can't be 100% convinced that you know a pure open source approach to that is sustainable in the modern era of capitalism. It might've been possible 20 years ago when nobody was really looking at technology as a primary. We were always like a cost center over there while open source was fine, you know, we could get away with things. But I just think that it's much different now, so. Yeah, I think um, there's always gonna be free riders who exploit free and open source software and give nothing back. And big companies are always gonna find loopholes in whatever licensing schemes you come up with if it serves their interest to find those loopholes. Uh, So that I think has had an impact on open source. I think the other thing is that open source has been in some ways so successful, particularly, I guess, Linux, that companies have said, oh, this is a model that we can use and exploit, which I think in the early days, there was this um, feeling around open source that we're we're a counterweight to um, corporate software or a counterweight to being controlled. It's a DIY, do it yourself, uh, build it yourself, which Mm. is fine in, as as you say, small cases, but when you're trying to build a business around it or operate a business using open source software, it it can become unwieldy and unfeasible without uh, some kind of corporation providing you updates and patches and fixes and new features and so on, all the things that you need to operate. (laughs) Yeah. When you need a hundred million dollars to produce a distribution, you know, a year to produce a distribution, (laughs) you know, the open source intent sort of falls apart. Now there are some signs of various people popping up saying we need to change it. But so far the people that I've seen promoting those movements are not people that I necessarily believe who have our best interests at hearts. A lot of those people popping up saying, you know, we need new open source licenses are people who have been able to exploit for their own benefit their position in the open source movement. And so I have some questions around that. And I actually don't think corporations care. I think corporations have been willing to take advantage of open source and to sort of roll with it and been willing to pay for it a little bit because ultimately it worked out pretty well. But if if all of the software turns back to closed source, as you said, Drew, they don't have any problem with paying for it and they'll just go back to paying for it. I don't think it matters. Right. And you pay for it one way or the other, because if the software is free, it's free like a puppy. You still have to upgrade it, maintain it, yeah. you know, <laughs> teach it not to pee in the house. Uh, so mm. uh, you're going to pay for yeah. it one way or the other. I think what we need to do is detach open source software from the implication that it is like morally superior to commercial software. I respect the tenets of open source. I'm glad that open source projects and communities exist. I think they do serve as yes. a counterweight to the giant tech conglomerates. But we need to recognize that in this current environment, uh, choosing to develop yeah. software as open source is a strategy. It's not a moral stance. Uh, and so you need to work from the fact that it is a strategy and all yeah. the things that come with that. 
That's right. When we get to a gentler, more friendly form of capitalism, that might change, Drew. But uh, <laughs> yeah. honestly, I'm not holding my breath, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, so one of the other things we want to talk about uh, are brand vendors in 2024, the big names, Cisco, HPE, Dell, Arista, how they're doing, uh, what we see as their prospects, that kind of thing. And Greg, you, I think you wanted to start off with uh, looking at Cisco and, and their their yeah. current stand, their place in the market these days. Yeah, you know, I, I sort of see Cisco as a bit of a banner you know, company in this space because they're a company that's transitioning from what they were, which was selling routers and switches, and then they transitioned into this software, then they transitioned into a full stack, and then they sort of, but they haven't grown a great deal, and it's clear that Cisco is struggling to find its new direction. And I suspect that at the moment, or as I've said, I do believe Cisco is sort of biding its time, and it's working hard on you know, working through its internal process of it's done some reorganizations, it's converged all of the enterprise products into a signal business unit, which is long overdue, probably more than 15 years late, um, because people don't see Cisco as a campus Ethernet, you know, e uh -huh. enterprise data center, you know, telcos, telco routers, enterprise routers. You know, I think that's all gone. I think the market has changed. So Cisco's sort of moving, following the market by, and in some cases by quite a bit. And, and we've seen evidence of that because Cisco is losing market share to Arista in the networking end market. The the data there that we've seen from various analyst firms is, but where Arista is winning is with off-prem cloud companies. So, you know, the AWSs, the Microsofts and so forth. But what I would also note is that HPEs had a really successful turnaround in the last two years. They're building a very strong business overall. They've gone from, you know, losing loads and um, after obviously all the divestitures when HPE split and HP went a different way and uh -huh. all, then they sold off all of the legacy business units to Microfocus, which then, of course, failed because all of that was loss-making stuff, you know. Um, I think that HP's gone on to refocus itself around Green Lake Emerald, so it's skating to where the puck is going. So people are saying, I want to rent my infrastructure um, and for people who want that, they're committing to that very strongly. And for people who want to buy it, well, they've still got that. Uh, but what I also, part of that, which is specifically networking, which is, you know, this is a network break, um, is that they built a very strong networking business, right? They built a really strong SD-WAN, SASE business when they acquired Silverpeak and a bunch of other acquisitions over the last two years to bring that together. Their data center business is now um, very much internal with the acquisition of um, Aruba. Aruba's built up its campus offerings and its branch offerings. So I actually think HP is moving very much away from selling Cisco products as its networking solution, which it was four or five years ago, and it's very much doing networking in-house. But it doesn't see itself selling network in competition with Cisco. It sees it's selling networking as part of a bundle. So a rack scale architecture or you buy our um, hyper-converged infrastructure, Green Lake, Emerald, you know, whatever. Uh -huh. And I think that's that's a turnaround. That's not something that I would have seen, say, three or four years ago that HPE would become a strong networking company. Yeah, it's funny because you said you see HPE being a strong networking company. I was like, really? I, I, I don't think so. But yes, they do have Silver Peak SD-WAN. They do have Aruba. So they are in that space. I guess I just wouldn't mm. put them on the same tier as Cisco. Maybe as a, they're definitely a competitor, but not, uh, I think, probably the one that Cisco's worried about. Yeah. And if Cisco was still the leading company, HP wouldn't have done that. Right. If that makes sense. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Back when Cisco was the, yeah. what controlled the networking market, essentially, yeah, the mm. HP wouldn't have wanted to endanger that relationship. No, because they made more money out of reselling Cisco to its customers, you know, through its resellers and so forth, and wanted to do that. 
I would also highlight that Cisco's end-to-end security business is a bit outdated and also very much lagging behind competitors like Palo Alto, Fortinet, and Zscaler. Um, those products are unified. Cisco's security business is still a bit, you buy this and you buy this and then you have to put it together yourself. And uh-huh. the acquisitions of Splunk, I don't think that will fix the problem in the in a year. I think it's still some time away before Cisco's cybersecurity looks like a useful unified offering. You've got to sort of assemble it yourself. And I don't think that works now. I think you have to go to companies like Palo Alto who say, we've got everything, just pick which one you want. And we have a unified architecture. The software is unified. Whereas I think Cisco still still looks a bit more like the old model where there's all these business units all competing with each other and dogfighting. And, and, and Cisco's got all of these products that overlap and they haven't yet converged them onto a single strategy. So um, I don't think uh, Cisco, of course, announced the acquisition of Isovalent and Cilium just before Christmas, right. like on the 21st of December. We'll talk more about that next year. But I think that is also a signal might be a signal that Cisco recognizes its existing multi-cloud networking and its on-prem data center networking isn't meeting customer needs. And um, containers in particular, its existing container networking probably isn't enough, particularly in the area of you know integrating security into meshes, which is where uh, NSX has been spectacularly successful by comparison. And we've also seen multi-cloud networking companies. We've seen you know all these other companies out there are taking away pieces of that uh, emerging new wide area networking business. And I think isovalent is sort of a signal from Cisco that they still haven't got the right product mixed together. They're not uh, meeting customers' needs where they are. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Cisco is not what it once was, but I also just, since we were talking about it, I went and looked up everybody's, uh, some major companies' uh, annual revenues for 2023. For Cisco, their annual revenue was $57 billion. Uh, compare that to Arista, $6 billion. Juniper Networks, $6 billion. Extreme Networks, $1.3 billion. Palo Alto Networks, $7 billion. Uh, HP, $29 billion. Okay, so a little bit bigger there. Um, Dell Technologies, $102 billion. But when you pull out um, the PC and laptop revenue Dell makes, then uh, the networking servers and storage business for Dell is just $38 billion. So Cisco is still the biggest player on the block in the networking mm. and security space. But I think you are correct in that uh, these... Uh, upstarts, these other vendors are picking away at its business and Cisco is essentially managing itself to shrink, managing it shrinking well, uh, but still Mm. is beset by any number of competitors who have a little bit more speed and flexibility to take market share. Yeah. Now you can take Cisco and put it onto other companies as well. So that I'm not picking on Cisco particularly, I'm just choosing Cisco because it's somebody that I study a lot as part of the networking, you know, and follow. Um, you can take Cisco and put it onto VMware, and that's why Broadcom bought it, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Same thing. Uh-huh. You know, uh, any of the brand vendors, you know, if you take that sort of acquisition and look at their products and say, yeah, they're not quite where the competitors are. And, and the sheer fact that there's so many other suppliers that are competing against the established players is a signal that that player is not doing as well as it as it says um, and that the market is changing. It's, it's entirely possible that their dominance, they will now become – equals with a lot of the companies that they used to be subservient, you know, that were just miners and so forth. Right. So, right. Yeah. 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 But the fact is Cisco is still, you know, nine to 10 times bigger than all its major competitors. So they've got a ways yeah. to go. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, yeah. not going to, not going to change any of that, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we also want to talk about uh, geopolitics and supply chain. This is a topic I think we do cover on network break, but we try to come to it, you know, a little, uh, obliquely because it is a sensitive issue, but the fact is geopolitics and we live in a global environment. We have a supply chain that stretches across the globe. We have uh, interdependencies technology-wise that cross political boundaries, and it's just an issue that folks have to deal with. 
Yeah, and the supply chain affects us because if you are used to running IT projects and then cutting purchase orders for your equipment at the last possible minute and expecting delivery in six weeks, I think that approach is under threat um, as we go forward. And I'll explain why. I think the and this is a, a generalization from a non-expert, but I do follow a lot of people to try and understand this. Um, so you know, take this as you will, make your own decisions. Mm-hmm. I, I think we are moving from a global um, environment where everything used to be multilateral. Everybody was kind of friendly. We've had 30 or 40, depending on how you measure it, really great years where global trade was equal. China would, you know, a lot of manufacturing moved to China. China would make good ship back. There was no problems with shipping. There was no problems with uh, conflicts. We didn't have any wars. We had minor terrorist incidents, you know, obviously aside from Afghanistan and what happened in Iraq, a few, but they were very, you know, restricted incidents and sets. What we're seeing now is multilateral politics is coming back in in a big way. We're seeing China and Russia team up to get very close. We're seeing a lot of Chinese aggression in the Asia Pacific. We're seeing India become a superpower in its region. The USA, of course, remains the dominant geopolitical force. And Europe, of course, is having its own problems with the war in Ukraine. There's terrorism in Israel and Palestine. You've got uh, North Korean aggression. It's starting to do moves on South Korea, which is a a terrifying flashpoint because they're both nuclear armed. Um, The net result of all of this is that there's change and weakness in the supply chain. We're seeing companies uh, change their supply chain, moving manufacturing slowly away from China piece by piece, moving it out to other countries, and they have to bed down those processes. That usually leads to quality control problems or disruptions in the supply process. So companies moving manufacturing from China to India or Vietnam or Japan or the Philippines or Indonesia, whatever it is, um, is is definitely changing. Obviously, TSMC with the its manufacturing of leading-edge chips. Um, and more recently, we've seen problems in the Panama Canal. I don't know. Have you followed the Panama Canal, Drew? Well, only since the that one ship got stuck. <laughs> but I yeah. kept up with it. <laughs> well, the Panama Canal used to have, I don't know, I can't remember the exact number, but you can go and research. I think it used to be like 100 ship movements a day or something. Mm. And it's now restricted to 30 ship movements a day because there's no water feeding into the lake that they use to flood the locks. Ah. And so now you have this situation where all of the shipping that used to go through that canal now has to go the long way around. And now, of course, in the Suez Canal in Egypt, <laughs> between Egypt and Israel, of course, there's this you know massive problems with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict going on there, and we've seen you know freighting uh, ships coming through the Suez Canal be attacked by very small um, groups of well-armed uh, groups, and now all of a sudden you're seeing the people who run shipping companies say, okay, well we have to sail all the way around Africa. We're not going to take the shortcut, and it's adding ten weeks onto the journey, uh, assuming that the weather stays good. So basically what this means is that globally, safe and reliable transport that we used to have for global trade is now no longer that. Um, large items that go by ships, cars, screen TVs, industrial machinery, they're at risk. Chips, smartphone, laptop, server boards, they move by air. Um, but I think this, the, you know, the supply chain is going to change the way um, how we work. It's going to be geopolitical. There's, um, you know, we don't want to see, you know, the U.S. has made it clear they don't want China to be able to manufacture chips or, you know, they're going to use that political power to control what an opponent in the geopolitical space is going to do. Uh, for example, where do we, you know, how does that affect us? I think it's going to affect our supply chains and and we should be ready for that. 
Yeah, so the U.S. is now spending billions of dollars to essentially rehome chip manufacturing, but that to build a rebuild a sustainable silicon industry in the U.S. could take years and years. There's still a lot of other components that rely on other countries to produce. There's also the question of raw materials, where they're located, and what you know global entities yeah. have control or influence there. So you can't just say, "Well, we're just going to make all our chips here." That's it's not possible. Um, I think. For our listeners, you should sort of look at geopolitics like weather or climate. It's an externality. You can't control it, but you should be thinking about it in terms of like disaster recovery and business continuity. So for instance, what components do you absolutely couldn't live without? Maybe have some spares uh, on hand just in case, as you mentioned, Mm. don't rely on just-in-time delivery anymore. Yeah, or plan your project to not necessarily have a choke pin. (laughs) Right, right, if you can. Yeah. 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 Make sure, you know, check into what your delivery timeframes are. It's very frustrating because you can waste a lot of work. I I sure understand. But yeah, as you say, you know, moving chip manufacturing away from Taiwan is a huge problem. We talked about it more than once over in 2023, and I think we'll still be talking about it into 2024. For sure. All right, a quick way to tell you our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. You can see how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud, Secure Web Gateway, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. 2024 is a year when companies will need to do more with less. As businesses grapple with economic uncertainty, it is more critical than ever to consolidate fragmented security and networking solutions in order to reduce operational complexity and costs. Palo Alto Networks has produced a virtual event so you can learn how the latest innovations in SASE can help your organization. Things like automate costly and complex IT operations with AI-powered digital experience management, connect and secure branch offices and the hybrid workforce with SD-WAN, ZTNA 2.0, and Cloud Secure Web Gateway, and unlock better ROI through consolidation of point solutions with Prisma SASE. Go to paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash SASE dash signature dash moment or see the show notes for episode 461 for the link. One more time, that's paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy dash signature dash moment uh, to see that virtual event. All right, back to the news. And here we go. We have to talk about SASE, SD-WAN, and SSE. Uh, that's been, you know, this this emerging category. SASE is essentially cloud-delivered security services that integrate SD-WAN, uh, and they are getting a lot of conversation. Yeah, so I guess it's it's a big topic because I think there's so much change going on here where people are moving away from dedicated circuits to this, you know, to be more flexible, get the idea of boostable, you know, flexible bandwidth and all that. Um, I basically see it continuing as is. We've been talking about it now for five years. There's a fairly, you know, if you if you followed us through the the discussions with vendors and you listen to what they have to say, to me, it's SD WAN has a particularly linear path and it's going to continue. We're going to see more fe- more security features fold in. You're going to see AI added to the security so they can detect more threats, more quicker, more better, more visibility more measurability, more observability. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the security functions are going to improve. You're going to see better support for hybrid work. You know, the idea that you're in the office, out of the office, there are people who work from home or from other people's offices. Uh, that's all going to be become more seamless and easier to operate. And I think also what we might see is endpoint management fold into SASE SD-WAN. At the moment, that seems to be something different. But I don't see why that should be a different product anymore. I think if you're going to have all of that cloud functionality, all of that software functions, why it won't be long before Palo Alto and Fortinet in particular say, why am I not just, or in Zscaler, by the way, Mm -hmm. why am I not just adding something to the endpoint management and folding it all into my product? And I think that's not far away. Why Why am I not managing mobile phones, iPads, laptops, you know, desktops, all that sort of stuff? Why not just put all that in there? Why not do it all in the security solution? Yep. I anticipate that as well. 
Um, I, I don't have numbers, but my instinct is that the discussion of SASE is much, much higher than the actual adoption of SASE. So I think we still are in very early days. Uh, and if I were a customer, I would approach SASE with caution. I think for vendors building a viable SASE architecture that can do all of the security scanning at peak load while remaining operationally and financially viable, it's a huge software and infrastructure challenge. So I think if you are looking at uh, SASE from a variety of vendors, push them hard on the infrastructure questions, especially if they start to get all hand wavy about, well, it's cloud and it's auto scaling. Dig deeper, dig deeper. Um, I yeah, do, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, though- I think uh, what you're saying there is that not all SASE solutions are the same. There's definitely a gap between some basic, you know, I did SD-WAN two years ago and now I'm SASE and companies who've been doing SASE for five to 10 years, there's a definite gap. There, there's a there's a feature set and a functionality capability that are, that some companies have that is far superior. Well, it's not even that. It's I, obviously, yes, there's going to be feature set differences, but also just how are they building this cloud-based security architecture so that it can do all of these security features you need at speed uh, accurately? That's, that's a very mm. hard problem. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm curious to see if anybody's actually cracked it, especially considering if SASE adoption is not that high right now, what happens if it does ramp up? Have they built the architecture to be able to sustain yeah. this, all, all of the capacity that's going to be coming at them? So I think yeah, generally, I, I don't think the actual basics of the networking is a big deal these days. I think, it, you know, it's like armpits. Everybody's got an SD-WAN solution. Sure. Yep. And, you know, the real value is in the usability. How easy is it for me to put this in front of the help desk? Am I using AI to accelerate my operations capability? Am I, you know, what's my visibility? into if, if some particular branch is having a performance problem, am I being alerted automatically? Right. That's That's where, that's the state of the art at the moment. I think so. Yes, that that monitoring that 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 analytic capability that which ties back to our earlier AI conversation. Can yeah. you get good information out of it? Um, and even though, yeah. just just one more point. Well, you know, I I think it's good to come to SASE with a skeptical eye. The fact is that the way applications are being delivered and consumed means that you know the old days of piping everything through your centralized cluster of firewalls is kind of gone. Uh, Security is going to get more distributed, which means you have to have an eye toward where it's going to be distributed and how to manage and monitor it all. So. Keep that in mind. Mm. Yep. Uh, one thing I want to put on maybe the prediction uh, calendar, our prediction spreadsheet is uh, the potential of somebody like Microsoft or AWS or Google, one of the big cloud providers, actually buying a uh, security vendor and making SASE just one of their cloud offerings. Um, to some extent, that's been done. They've all introduced the SASE SD-WAN, but it's been more of a Cloudflare model than a, um, you know, a, a traditional infrastructure model targeted at uh, existing you know, FTSE 2000 type of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So far they've sort of been targeting then cloud natives rather than the the traditional enterprise. Yes, but there is money mm. there. Yeah, I, it, that would be a thing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the next topic is uh, how to be an employee in 2024 in terms of relationship to your employer. Yeah, I, this is a tough one, Drew. I, I think some of this is going to be, not 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 controversial, but maybe it'll be uncomfortable for some people. I think the basic principle of employer loyalty will continue to erode. I think that's one thing. In mm -hmm. 2024, that idea that I'm loyal to my employer will be erode even more than it already has. Um, I see the current version of capitalism. My, my mental model is to call it shareholder capitalism, which puts shareholders and owners before customers and employees. We see that a lot where big companies are all about returning money to shareholders or doing what's right for shareholders but less about doing what's right for customers. They'll quite happily burn customers if I can get two quarters of good results. 
and you know make shareholders happy and that's certainly something that we've seen that sort of gets to this rather you know uh capitalism which is really greedy and sort of whatever which is really what they're doing is focusing on the shareholders um big companies do this but i think we're also seeing small companies do this where the owners expect to get huge returns and they will go for short term returns over long term returns i think the shareholder capitalism has come all the way down into small business as well so what does this mean to you this means that employees are a consumable that can be squeezed on price to produce more for less to be fired at will to dodge paying for paying for those services wherever you can you are not a person you are a human resource in the same way that a pile of metal or a <laughs> you know, a, a roll of paper or sheets of paper that go into a printer. That's how people are increasingly being treated. Um, and I think employees have been slow to respond here. They're not understanding what's been happening there. But increasingly, I think people are starting to understand their value in this process and demand to be paid correctly, to be treated well, and become more willing to walk out the door when they're not. And they're thinking of themselves as a supplier. Does that make sense? Are you seeing that as well? Yeah, I think so. I think one of the other effects of the pandemic was people realized like, oh, uh, I I do have some value and suddenly uh, that value, I have some leverage now in this conversation with my employer, people negotiating for higher salaries, better wages, better working conditions. Uh, I think that's a good thing. I don't know if it's going to last, but uh, we have had a little bit of that <laughs> in the past couple yeah. of years. And I also think that, you know, as people understand this, what, that human skills of empathy, loyalty, reciprocity, being nice to your co-workers, being respectful of your managers, that's all disappearing because it becomes a very transactional relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and so those, and the, the, the secondary effect of that is that soft skills of, you know, working with people is actually no longer a thing because it's a purely transactional. I'm here to do this job, to get this money. I won't do anything outside of this model. And companies are now saying, why are workers not working hard? Why are workers not and that's because that's the environment that's been created. So, you know, employers would rather lose good employees than fix problems inside their business. That is, instead of turning around a bad or a failing product or service, more by the time they have, um, a competitor has already entered the space and taken the opportunity because the speed of business has accelerated so much. Yeah. So rather than bother to try and fix it or invest in a new, you know, refreshing the product or whatever, they'll just throw away the whole business unit, including all the good employees, right? If there's bad employees, they'll get taken out, but so will the good ones, right? Rather than fix a process, it's easier to throw it away. And I think that's something that it's an extension of what we talked about before, this sort of transactional work for money. You know, there's no concept of humanity in the whole process. Now turns around and say, well, well, this isn't working. A competitor's already emptied the market space. Well, we'll just get out of it and go somewhere else, or, you know, double down on the things that are working for us. Uh, I also think interest rates and inflation are expected to remain at current levels around 2024. There's different... The market saying one thing and the Federal Reserve Banks of the US, <laughs> Europe and UK are saying another. Yes. Um, but the general consensus that I'm seeing is that the current inflation rates of between 3 to 5% uh, globally are going to stay in place. This means that you should expect to get a pay rise of at least 5% in 2024. If you don't, you should be planning to leave because your employer is effectively decreasing your pay, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a straight up. You should probably expect a 10%, up to 10% as a cost of living increase, depending on where you live. I also think that the recruitment process remains very messy for both sides. I talked before about, you know, you're using AI to generate a resume, but the recruiters are using AI to evaluate your resume. There's a real breakdown <laughs> here. Like, But keep in mind that your recruiters are now able to use AI 
and related technologies to start sniffing around your social media to track your work history. Like it's not just a case of a recruiter going to LinkedIn and looking at your profile and who you're connected to. They can actually go and start hunting for you on Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram and build up a profile of you as a person really, really easily where before that would have been something reserved for executives or, you know, high value employees. This is now coming right the way down. Mm -hmm. So be aware of that. As, you know, if you're going to get out there and clean up your social media, if you've got it, sort of thing. Don't yeah. Don't be flashing around that you've got extreme views or, you know, whatever. And if you think you're going to work for a, a company that has non-extreme views or doesn't value those extreme views. Yeah. One bright spot though, Drew, one bright spot is that uh, I was looking at some economic data and they've pointed out that computer science studies now exceed the total number of students in humanities. So before like 10 years ago, a lot of students went into humanities and learned how to have empathy and to think about social issues and to think about communication. What's happening now is we've got so many enrollments in computer science. Um, there's probably more people in computer science than, you know, almost any other academic track these days. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a couple of things that's interesting out of this is there, we're going to see a flood of young people coming out with quite good computer skills instead of, you know, people coming on with hum humanities and soft skills type mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. I think if I was, you know, working at an, an employer and I have these young people, I'd be a bit nervous because they're going to learn quick and they've got good grounding in computer skills. They could be, you know, they could hasten you out of the workforce if you're not careful. So watch out for that, <laughs> but also watch out for that. They'll have knowledge and skills that you can harness, right? You could learn things from them. So be aware that if the flood of, you know, new, highly educated in computer science, people start taking jobs in your, your company or alongside of you, sit down and listen to them because they've learned things that you didn't. They come from a different era um, listen to what they have to say. And I think that's really exciting because a, a fresh era of technologists is good for the business. We don't have enough people applying for computing jobs or technology jobs. Well, I will say, this is just my own personal observation, but my youngest son is a computer science, computer security major in college. He just finished his first semester freshman year. Uh, and we've looked at, you know, sort of the program, the whole program is going to go through. And I can say that him coming out, he's going to be uh, very comfortable in Python. He's going to be very comfortable with automation. He's going to have a background in a lot of different kinds of technology. So he's going to walk into an organization, I think, with a decent skill set. I think where he's going to be lacking is good communication skills. Uh, he's not going to have any experience and he's not going to know how businesses actually <laughs> operate. <laughs> so you still got that in your back pocket, you know, if you're one of the, yeah. the gray beards or the, the older folks in an industry, you, you've still got the, some essential experience that these young folks won't have. But I think Greg, yeah, it's great to yeah. welcome them with open arms, see what you can learn from them and and be able, and you have stuff you can teach them. So it's not, to, they're not just here to replace you. Yeah. They're, they're, it's, it should yeah. be a little oh, bit I don't know. A symbiotic. nerd without social skills reminds me of me 35 years ago, possibly even today. So I, I not the, the social <laughs> skills, yeah, but just being able to clearly communicate, I, I, yeah. I know it's still, it's still a useful thing, even if it's not uh, yeah. Python. <laughs> being able to write a clear email or a report still has value out in the world. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> I promise you, 30 years ago, that was me. No social skills, no communication skills. And you know, look where you whatever. are now, so, talking for yeah. a living. Uh, I would say a lot of people would say you still don't, Greg, but perhaps that, you know, maybe I've gotten a little, I feel a little bit better, maybe. Yeah. Make your own decisions. Make your own decisions. <laughs> All right, we also uh, teased quantum, so we do want to talk quickly about uh, the, the potential of quantum in 2024, where we see that going. Yeah, I don't think quantum computing is going to be a big deal in 2024. Um, but there definitely are signs that quantum computing and quantum networking are reaching viable product state and there are markets emerging for them. So there is, 
uh, some early adoption, perhaps. It's worth noting that the first quantum computers were actually sold in 2011. So not exactly a, a breakthrough, you know, uh, instantly emerged into the market. Mm -hmm. uh, today we have D-Wave, IBM, Google, and AWS with uh, working quantum computers. And many of the brand vendors are spending money on quantum computing like Microsoft and Intel, right? Yep. But here's what I will say about quantum, Drew, is that quantum computing is uniquely suited to breaking cryptography. Right. And I think we will see a massive hype cycle out of the cybersecurity people to say, oh, you've got to rotate all your algorithms and you've got to go to post-quantum cryptography. And I think sometime in this year, there's going to be a sky is falling type mm -hmm. discussion. <laughs> it's a classic <laughs> security playbook. <laughs> yeah, you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Yes. Sell, the, sell the fear, sell the fear. Yes. So I think generally we are better prepared for this than we were in previous decades, for sure, since we've improved how we update firmware and the process of rolling over keys and algorithms is much better than... <laughs> than where we were. But I do expect a lot of cybersecurity marketing drama to come out of this. So just be aware of that. Yeah. Um, and But also, you know, there is a lot of interest in specific verticals to use comp quantum computing. If you go out and spend time reading about quantum computing, which sadly I did, um, there are people using quantum computing for, for lots of really, really interesting, but really, really niche things like DNA or antibiotics or right, stuff right, like right. that, right? Yeah, life sciences, but, uh, medical sciences, geophysics probably. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So I think we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that 2024 is the quantum unless some sort of massive breakthrough happens and it suddenly becomes quantum on the desktop. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have probably a, not even. Yeah, I don't have a big read on quantum computing other, the, other than to say that I can see big governments being very interested in developing quantum computing to crack non-quantum encryption. Um, but if everybody gets to quantum, then of course there will be also quantum encryption, which will be back to the same old story. But uh, I think... Folks like IBM are pushing quantum because they see that as the return to the mainframe business where they can sell you a complete package of the integrated software, the integrated hardware, and we give you the training so that these high priests can operate the quantum mainframe. So I understand why IBM is getting into it, but again, I don't see it being a significant influence for 2024. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't have anything to do with the 15 years of uh, you know investment, R&D <laughs> investment. That too. <laughs> it's going to pay off. Like to get that. going to pay off. Pay off. Uh, but remember that quantum computing is still relies on supercooled uh, superconductors, you know, to generate quantum materials. And um, so it's not exactly highly specialized. Portable. Yeah, no, it's still very, you know, <laughs> yeah. if we ever come up with a solution for the, for the materials that, that generate the quantum entangled elements, then it's going to change. But until then, you know, I don't think 2024 is the year of quantum. Yes. Well, it wouldn't be a network break if we didn't talk a little bit about space networking. Uh, so Greg, you, I'll let you start. Yeah, so um, we talked a lot about direct handsets last year. So this idea of mobile phone to satellite. Just over the Christmas break, uh, Starlink did launch six satellites for testing with T-Mobile, but the mobile to satellite service isn't expected to start uh, service until the end of 2024. Um, that might be code for 2025, but it wasn't an Elon promise. It was a SpaceX promise. Ah. And generally SpaceX does. <laughs> Need it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you know what I mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Elon tends to be, uh, let's say, optimistic yes. when he makes a commitment for delivery. Yes. In other words, he never, ever hits a deadline. When when Elon makes a, a commitment for a deadline, he never, ever hits it. Whereas if SpaceX actually says it, then generally uh, there's some degree of truth to that. What I do note is that SpaceX is planning 14 launches per month in 2024. Um, and wow. that is entirely credible considering how many launches. I think they did like a... I should have looked this up, but I believe it was something like 100 launches in 2023. Uh -huh. So to get to 150, you know, 140 is entirely possible. 
um, considering how successful they've been in 2023. So, um, but I would note that while SpaceX and Starlink claim to be profitable, most analysis I've seen indicate that they are not. So I suspect that what happens is that Starlink claims it to be profitable for some definition of profitable, like some accounting magic that says that until Starship comes online, I don't actually believe uh, that Starlink will be profitable. And there's also many competitors and there is definitely more room for suppliers in the market. So I think SpaceX and Starlink um, absolutely competitively so far ahead of everybody else. So the amazing, amazing, you know, technology achievement and the sort of successes they have are all set to continue. But uh, I do believe that investors are starting to say it's time to start making a profit. And I think we'll see more of that in 2024. And there might be some changes where Starlink stops being sort of a speculative, ever growing, ever committing to more and more and much more of a, we need to make money, we need to sell products. So maybe 2024, but maybe not. Yeah, I think space networking is still in its potential phase because it's in the infrastructure building phase, just the same way as, you know, telcos and service providers had to pull fiber to homes before we could start delivering uh, fiber as a service. We have to get the satellites into space before we can have space networking. Uh, so that is happening apace. Uh, the, the cynical side of me wants to say it's just a couple of billionaires um, doing these vanity projects, but I think uh, it's it's more than that. There is potential for space networking to get service, particularly to underserved areas and to potentially become viable competitors to the likes of Verizon and Comcast and the big incumbents uh, on the ground. And I would like to see that happen. For sure. For sure. All right. Now, final topic is virtual reality, Drew. Um, <laughs> I wanted to mention this because I think it's going to be a big consumer thing. It's not a IT. It's not a corporate enterprise technology. I think virtual reality is going to be a thing, but I think it's going to be the biggest hype since blockchain. I think it's just going to be all over the mainstream media because it's very consumer friendly. It's very visible. You can make up all sorts of things about virtual reality that, you know, whatever you like, Drew. Right, right. Um, but particularly what's going to happen is Apple is, look, all the signs are clear that Apple um, expects to release its virtual reality headset in March. I've seen various reviews and testing by independent people, like uh, media figures from outside of Apple have been invited into Apple to run test versions. They can't take it off premise, but they can come out and talk about their experience of it. And they've all been very positive. Um, I think Meta is still sulk sulking about its failure to get an early. Remember when Meta released the, you know, renamed itself from Facebook to, to Meta, Meta to because it wanted to build the metaverse. the metaverse. Yeah, and, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> and really, you know, people haven't stopped laughing. I think, but uh, to some extent, uh, Meta, of course, com continues to spin off the phenomenal amounts of cash from its advertising business. But what I would note is that Qualcomm did release new silicon just before Christmas. Uh, links are in the show notes if you want to go and have a look at it. It does uh, 4.3K per eye resolution and more than 12 concurrent cameras. So Qualcomm has come up with a chip that should enable, uh, in this case, they're in a partnership with Samsung, but I think uh, Meta could probably you know, start to look at the silicon and have hardware that's um, probably close to what Apple is doing with its headset. Apple, of course, has got all these custom chipsets and custom operating systems and custom camera software. Uh, I think Meta doesn't quite have the same sophistication or software development capabilities that Apple does here. Mm. And it come, is definitely coming from behind and they made a mistake releasing too early. But I think you'll see a lot of, you know, rather vapid hype going on and, um, I don't know. Are you going to buy one? Are you going to buy a, an Apple headset? God, no, no, <laughs> not interested. <laughs> Which surprises me because as a kid, I would have been like, "Yeah, cool, virtual reality. I want to be there." But yeah. um, mm. I, 
I think device manufacturers are desperate to find a new platform so they can sell you more devices and more software. Uh, and I guess if anybody could pull it off, it would be Apple. But I think VR, you know, it just has a couple of things going against it. One is the the headsets. When you wear it, you look like a doofus. Your face gets all sweaty. And frankly, yeah. I think, you know, humans are instinctually creeped out by not being able to be aware of their surroundings. Like I've, I've mm-hmm. used some of those headsets and when you're in it, you're in it and it's cool, but you're also like, wait, is there somebody behind me really like right now watching me what I'm doing? Yeah. It's just that, that sort of, you know, biological instinct to be aware of your surroundings is totally eliminated. And I think that's maybe a bridge too far, but who knows? We'll see. I'm, I'm curious to see if Apple can pull it off. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought I'd mention that I don't think it has any impact on enterprise IT as such or cloud computing or you know, whatever. So we're not going to be putting um, on VR goggles and, and uh, special gloves and going in into our configurations uh, virtually to, to fix them? You don't see that happening? Uh, no, no. I don't think we'll be doing Ready, ready Player One style. Yes, the metaverse of the know. data center. The, the data center metaverse, you know, or the <laughs> operational metaverse. Or I, could I don't think that's going to happen. Fight off malware like Tron. I, maybe that could be yeah. cool. Yeah. But I mean, they are talking like the, the VR headsets are probably going to be north of 3000 to $4,000 a piece. Wow. So it's definitely, you know, it's only a, for the a, only for the true believers in the first days, I suspect. Fashion accessory. Yes. Yeah. So uh, that's my prediction for the hype cycle, uh, but it's not really going to affect enterprise IT. But there you go. All right. All right. Well, this was a long conversation. Thank you for hanging in. If you're still hanging in, uh, do stick around. We've got a Tech Bytes conversation with Palo Alto Networks. We're going to be talking about autonomous digital experience management. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, sponsored by Palo Alto Networks, we look at autonomous digital experience management, or ADEM, which provides detailed visibility into end user device and application performance. We're going to talk about how Palo Alto Networks uses AI ops to help IT and help desk teams quickly identify and respond to problems for a distributed workforce. Our guest is Dinesh Ranjit. He is Director of Product Management at Palo Alto Networks. Uh, Dinesh, welcome to the show. And before we get into the discussion, can you just bring us up to speed on what ADEM is as a product category? We launched our ADEM, Autonomous Digital Experience Management uh, solution. It primarily stands on two important pillars, right? One is how do we provide IT teams with end-to-end or holistic visibility, if you would, specifically in a hybrid workforce environment, right? Where your users are connecting and accessing applications from, you know, home network, maybe their favorite coffee shops or a couple of days or three days in a week, walk into your branch offices. Yep. The second major thing is the applications are also in a multi-cloud environment, SaaS apps, private apps in public clouds or in a physical data center. So how do IT teams have full visibility? And how can we use AI ops to transform IT teams from being reactive to proactive, right? So that was our aim when we started and we built and launched our AI-powered ADEM solution. Okay, and there's two elements to the solution, I guess. Then there's the client agent, which sits out on an end user's device, and then that's sending information back to a centralized management area where then IT and help desk can get information on you know that, that end user experience. That's absolutely right, Drew. So... I'll actually say we have three vantage points from where we collect telemetry, right? To quickly go over them, one is all of your users' endpoint devices, right? The end user devices, if you would. The second is we are natively integrated with our Prisma SD-WAN, uh, uh, the branch routers. The third, we have a cloud probe agent. Um, we have we are present, our, our SASE solution is present in 140 cloud locations globally. And we have a cloud agent in these 140 plus locations and we use these three probes, if you would, to do the monitoring uh, for your business critical applications to collect all of the telemetry, right? So this is not 
in-network telemetry. This is out-of-band telemetry. And what I mean by that is a lot of the times people rely on telemetry that is either ejected from the appliance in the form of flow records, or they tap into the network and start collecting you know, packet, uh, collecting packets off the wire and then feeding them into a flow generator, which then generates flow records or captures all the packets and then looks for insights in the analytics. DEM is much more of a, an out-of-band. There is a probe, there is an agent somewhere either looking at the data or sending, creating tests, manu- literally running manual tests between two endpoints to get an idea of what's happening in the network. That is right. What we call a synthetic traffic, if you would, or synthetic tests, where these three probes, the three vantage points I spoke about, will will do, again, the periodicity is configurable, but let's say default five minutes, a test towards your business critical applications. And it's monitoring, I'm going to say three critical things here. One is end user device performance. Second is the network performance. And third is the application performance, right? And mm. the, the reason for synthetic testing is even when somebody's not accessing an application, you still want to continuously measure all of these three things, device performance, network performance, mm-hmm. and application performance. So you can start building those baselines. Like you use machine learning to understand what is normal and what patterns change when you have, you know, let's say at load or or you're moving and, and how that yeah. latency is, et cetera, right? Yeah, because a synthetic test can go and log into a website, fetch a test image 20 times and then log back out again, right? And you can run that on the weekend as well as you can at peak times on a Friday afternoon, or, you know, on a Wednesday, whatever the time is, and actually find out the delta between the two. So how does the server work under load and how does the server work when it's not under load and that becomes your baseline. So then you know what the deviation is. That's the idea there, isn't it? And couple that with, I would say also uh, geographies and locations, meaning let's take, you know, application A in Northam, the latency is probably 30 milliseconds for the same application A, let's say it's distributed, it's a SaaS app for regions in Asia Pacific, maybe it's 60 milliseconds is normal. So how do you start building that view and then truly tie that back to user experience, right? So that's the aim with mm. what we are trying to build with our uh, AI-powered ADAM solution. Right. And then what you're doing is adding AI to this tool. You know, before we talked about using machine learning, before it was statistics and heuristics, and, you know, way back in time, it was just charting it on a chart. This is really the evolution of that product to the net, to a much more usable state. I don't want to trivialize this and say like, you know, blah, 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 and, you know, increment, increment, but it's now we're bringing AI to the to the digital experience monitoring world. Absolutely. So let me kind of touch upon two important things, how um, AI is useful, right? And at this point, I'll also talk about one of my interactions with our uh, customers who was using this product, right? Hmm. Talk about digital experience. We talk about, you know, users accessing applications, but there is a notion of also your critical network infrastructure. And one important thing we did was using our ADM solution, we also monitor critical network infrastructure. Example, your auth servers, right? Auth behavior at a, a organization level. Mm. With this customer, we baselined, imagine auth requests coming into or flowing through uh, our solution, our Prisma SASE solution. How many of those auth requests succeeded? How many of them failed because of a wrong username, pass, wrong password? And, and third reason being a timeout failure. And imagine we start seeing deviations and timeout failures. Every network will see few auth requests timeout, right? It's normal. Mm, Maybe yeah. if, mm. Let's say 10, 10 requests in an hour, right? But suddenly I think hundreds of these auth requests time out and I have the hop by hop network performance. Now I'm able to literally root cause and tell you if the problem is a network problem or is it a problem with your auth server or the third thing is it's a change in config, maybe a misconfig of the auth profile causing this auth behavior. Being able to AI to get to that 
proactively, it actually stopped a widespread outage for our customer because they quickly knew where the problem was. They went and applied the remediation, boom, the auth was back on track. Right. Can you talk about what the AI brought to the table then that, uh, you know, just a, an engineer looking at all these alerts coming in wouldn't necessarily have been able to do as quickly? So I'll, I'll tell you a great question. Two important uh, key, actually three key points, right? One, how do you know how many auth requests timing out in a given time at a given time of day in a given region is okay? And we actually have machine learning algorithms trying to understand that those baselines, right? And every different counts. So I, I also like to mention ML ops, right? Machine learning at, at scale, uh -huh. where if you're trying to baseline different kinds of metrics, we are using different machine learning algorithms. So first is being able to detect there is a deviation in behavior, right? That's number one, what we call as anomaly detection. The second piece is correlation. Now I have, a, let's say, an anomaly detected with odd behavior. I'm looking at network path performance. I, we talk about latencies, uh, packet loss, jitter, et cetera, uh -huh. hop by hop, all the way from a user to the auth server, let's say. I have a lot of telemetry there. Again, I look for anomalies in that path and being able to correlate them and, and build causation. So what we do is topological correlation um, and logical correlations to be able to kind of peel out the root cause, if you would. And the last piece about the AI ML here is what I call is automated remediations. Understanding all of this, we actually propose what the next step should be to fix this problem, right? So that kind of completes the story of AI ops and how AI and ML is used for us. Okay, and I think that correlation part is probably important because if you're dealing with hundreds of alerts, you're sort of like, okay, where do I start? But this correlation capability means, okay, this looks like it's not my auth server, it's a network issue, and it's restricted to people on this segment of a particular network that I should go investigate? A hundred percent. So you already kind of touched upon what I call as impact analysis. Okay, the system is telling me there's a failure here. Like you said, it's not the auth, it's the network, but who is impacted? And that's such a huge thing for uh, network operators or IT teams today, because in general, um, even if 1% or 5% of these users who are seeing these auth issues end up calling your help desk, how do you quickly tie it back saying that they are impacted by this particular outage or this anomaly that the system has already detected? So all of that correlation that you, you touched upon also helps quickly tie your help desk tickets, your users calling to complain back to a known anomaly and then being able to provide them with an ETA, et cetera, or also helps you understand the impact or or how, what is the blast radius of this issue? You're telling me there's a problem with my auth server or the network towards the auth server. Is it uh, 50 users, 500 users, 5,000 users? How do you engage that? And, and that's where all of this correlation really makes it uh, useful for the uh, network teams. Do you have another example you can share? So imagine similar construct on auth, we talk about, we baseline pretty much all data flowing through a SASE solution, right? I'll give a few examples of DNS anomalies. How do you differentiate between your DNS server being overloaded versus a DDoS attack happening. Imagine again, ML at scale to detect those anomalies and then correlate to tell you if it's a DDoS attack versus it's actual, your DNS server load is high and it's not able to respond. Uh, it's, an, it's another example and use case that we solve. Third is ISP outages, doing a large scale cross correlation for data coming from all users, anonymized, all our ADEM customers in a geolocation who are using the same internet provider being able to find internet outages or more specifically, I would say, degradation of the internet service, right? We all know if internet is not working at home. When I'm at home and I know if internet is completely down, you would know, I would know. But it's when the internet is actually working, but not working well, and my app is timing out, my page is loading slowly, 
Who do I call? Am I going to call my IT and complain? What can they do about it? Now, imagine this visibility for IT teams and for end users directly. If they come to know that their internet provider is going through a degradation, is of a lot of mm. value to kind of deflect those tickets. So again, all of these mm. use cases powered by AI, cross-correlation, large-scale correlations, etc. So really, everything you've talked about here is about this operations, how reducing operations or reducing the cost of operations by finding things like this proactive troubleshooting or um, uh, early warning or predictive fault monitoring was one that you talked about before. But now what you're suggesting is you've got improved diagnostic tools. So how I can get to the root of a problem faster and prove that it's this, not that. that so that's really what, and that's, that both of those things are operational expense reducing. They reduce the cost of overheads or, um, you know, more pe- fewer people can do more work type of idea. That is absolutely right. So some of the examples we spoke so far, uh, right, were about proactively detecting issues that is impacting a large number of users, let's say. Now let's flip it a little bit of how we are using AI ML in our ADM solution to solve a single user calling your help desk and complaining, right? So we built a tool that's called Access Analyzer. And the idea being, let's say this morning I wake up, I was able to access Salesforce last night. This morning I'm not able to, and I'm calling IT and saying, hey, I'm, I'm trying to get my work done. I'm, I'm part of the sales team. I can't get to Salesforce. It's really a, a loss of productivity. Mm. Now, traditionally, help desk teams are that I learn either they have to switch between multiple tools, one problem, second problem, maybe they don't even have access to enough data. And I've heard from enough of our customers, by the way, that it's always a network problem, right? <laughs> Check the ticket to the networking team. I've yeah. heard this from many of our customers. <laughs> Proving that it's not the network, meantime to innocence, that's the key. You, you mm. nailed the metric there. So mm. one of the key things uh, we wanted to solve was ambiguity in ticket routing. What we meant by that is we actually built a tool which can perform multi-domain analysis, which is, it's going to, so imagine this, you simply fire a query, can Dinesh, which is me, access salesforce.com and we have all the telemetry starting from my MacBook, which I'm using to access Salesforce. What is the health and performance of my MacBook? Or if I'm logged in from home, what is my home Wi-Fi network looking like on my home router? How is about my internet provider? Oh, how about salesforce.com itself? Is there an outage of Salesforce in the US West Coast? And mm. last but not least, we couple that with security policy configuration. Now I'm able to holistically tell you if Dinesh is not able to access Salesforce, what is causing this problem? And if help desk is empowered and equipped to be able to make take remediations, that's great. If not, we just eliminated ambiguity in ticket routing. Now I know mm. if it's security policy blocking access, boom, the ticket goes to the right team, maybe the security yeah, admin. Okay. Uh-huh. I'll flip one last thing. Um, and, and, and I really want, you know, people are going to, in, in, everybody's going to relate to this. I'm going to write a policy which says group.sales application Salesforce allow. Is Dinesh part of the right group this morning? Or is there a breakage between Active Directory and the SASE solution? Yeah. So I wanted to expand on something here. Now, one of the things here is that this is Palo Alto Networks. And for many people, you are a security company, you do firewalls, you do security, you do SOAR, you do, you know, all that, you do SASE. And now you're saying you're getting into the visibility monitoring. If I was someone who's saying like, why would I be getting this from Palo Alto Network? Is there something that you can do by saying, because I'm giving this tool and if you've got all my other, what's the advantages of buying them all from one vendor instead of saying, I'm going to go and buy, because normally we buy visibility tools separately from our actual infrastructure tools, right? Because we want something that's multi-vendor. Does yours fit into that model? 
So first thing I, I want to kind of uh, start off saying why it should be us is because for folks who are listening to some of our other podcasts, we have embarked down on what I call as a single unified platform story, right? From mm. end to end, right? it's remote workforce, branch office security, people who have embarked on zero trust network access, etc. The key is two things. One, end-to-end, being a Palo Alto single vendor, and we are seeing a lot of our, our top customers kind of adopting the strategy. You do not want to, we talked about switching between tools, carrying context mm. between two different tools is one of the biggest challenges of correlation, root causing, being able to do ML, AI effectively, right? Data is the key. The minute you have two different siloed, discrete vendors who talk two different languages, let me put it that way, right? A policy uh-huh. vendor we mean different a policy in vendor two, being able to do correlations there is hard, right? That's number one problem. Number two problem is you have to manage yet another piece of software. Example, our solution is natively integrated with the Palo Alto products that you would purchase for your, like I said, a VPN replacement project or SWIG proxy use cases or ZTNA use cases, et cetera, right? We are natively integrated. For activating ADEM, you're not buying yet another piece of software and you're not going to, you know, going to go through the life cycle of upgrade, install, et cetera. Mm. It's all delivered to you in the same controller or management plane that you would use for our Prisma SASE, right? So that's what right. makes us different because mm. the time to value of rollout the solution is probably, I would say, three clicks, to be honest, right? And we want to get to a single click, but... Even using it, because if I've got multiple operators... And I've got someone who's doing, say, firewall management and SaaS management, you know, and you've got all of the policies that you're setting up in a zero trust environment. There's value in being in the same console and the same authentication and authorization. If you're in this user group, you can see this configuration of all the tools. And the visibility here or the digital experience monitoring should be, it's easier if it's part of that, perhaps. Oh, 100%, right? So Mm. it's not just ADEM. When we write security policies, imagine we need device posture. If you have turned off your antivirus software, you don't get access to certain ground jewel or business critical applications. Uh-huh. For you to write such a policy now, you need to understand device posture, device ID, et cetera. With all of that data, you want to troubleshoot with that same interface, a, a, a tool that you use to implement your security stack or your access stack. You want the same tool to be able to troubleshoot. You don't want a different vendor because then, like I said, we're talking different languages. You have to teach Talk about training your help desk and network teams or operators. You're going to encounter again the same amount of, um, or, you know, twice the amount of effort to train them on two different tools. So uh, mm. that's the key, I would think. The, the value in having this integrated end-to-end single vendor story is so powerful. Yeah. And is this uh, endpoint client um, integrated with, if I'm also using Palo Alto for antivirus, anti-malware, remote access, I can also get ADEM capabilities or is it a separate client? Oh, it's the same client, no separate client. It's a single client. What you use for remote workforce connectivity, what we call as our mobile users uh, solution for remote workforce uh, connectivity, that same agent sitting on every single end user's laptop has this ADEM agent uh, embedded within it, right? It's all about enabling it. Once enabled, that's it. So you're not installing new software. You're not even uh, certifying a new software because I'll tell you, certifying Anything that goes on endpoints today, every uh, large organization have to certify that software. Sure. Right. So all of that is gone. It's a single software that you're certifying and installing. It's all about enabling features at that point. Okay. That does wrap up our time together. Dinesh, if folks want to try this for themselves or get more information about ADEM, where should they go? 
two important assets. One is I would recommend poloalternetworks.com slash sassy. And you'll find a lot of content, uh, demo videos and recordings about our ADM solution. The second is the product has been shipping and we have an evaluation license available today for you to try out. And I highly encourage you to try the license out. Mm. Okay. We'll have that link in the show notes. Uh, thanks to Nesh for joining us. And thanks to Palo Alto for being a sponsor. Sponsors make everything we do here at Packer Pushers possible. But of course, thank you for being a listener. You are also very important to us. If you like this episode, you can find it and many more fine free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packapushers.net. You can follow us on LinkedIn. You can hear us on Spotify. You can join our Slack channel if you want to hang out and say hello. And last but not least, you can leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And as always, remember that too much networking would never be enough.